awesome. You guys may be seated. And if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Awesome. I have a, a water bottle um, reset when you enter the, uh, the podium, the stage. Luke chapter 6, we're continuing our study of the gospel of Luke. And it's a beautiful thing to see the life, the ministry, the power of Jesus and how we can add this to our own lives. I titled my study this morning, The Beatitudes, To Be or Not to Be. Today we have one of the greatest sermons that Jesus has ever taught. Recorded in not just Luke, also in Matthew. And these are beatitudes, a a way to be as a believer, to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. We're going to take a look at Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, now that Jesus is in his public ministry. Thank you. Beginning with verse 1. It says, Now it happened, on the second Sabbath, after the first, he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grains and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do? On the Sabbath. So the Jews, they had their Sabbath day, and they still have their Sabbath day. It's their day of rest. Now, as Jesus and his disciples are walking through this grain field, they are tired and hungry. They desire some, some food, something to give them energy. And by rubbing the heads of the grain together, they were actually going against, however, one of the 613 commandments given to the Jews in the Talmud. So the Jews took what God had already commanded of people through the Ten Commandments, and they added on to them 613 commandments. So this is something that's extra biblical. It's not in our word, these 613 commandments that the Jewish religion added. And there's some interesting laws concerning the Talmud. If you visit Israel, you'll find that on their Sabbath day, which begins at Friday at 6 p.m., that the elevators have special elevators dedicated to the Sabbath. And you don't want to get on that elevator if you're not a Jewish believer because then you're going to stop at every single floor of that building because in their law, it is wrong and immoral to push a button in an elevator because it would cause a spark and that would be considered work. So they have elevators known as the the Sabbath elevator that they get to use that stops at every single floor of that building. And then they have the Gentile elevator, which you usually want to try to use on a Sabbath day. Another interesting law that the Jews still follow is they don't use cash on the Sabbath. They like to use credit cards. Those are allowable. They also don't make coffee because to make coffee is considered work. And for me, it was terrible because then I had to drink Turkish coffee, which had no flavor but was very strong and powerful, like jet fuel. Looking up even some of the other interesting laws that the Jews still follow to this day, There's a special order to how they put on their shoes. They put their right shoe on and then their left shoe on. They tie their left shoe before tying the right one. And shoes that don't need to be tied like Velcro are fastened right before left. Isn't that interesting? When cutting their nails, they don't cut on consecutive digits like pinky, ring finger, middle finger, but they skip around. 
The reason why I, I believe that they do this is because it is wrong for them to count things. When they count people, they'll say, you're not number one, you're not number two, you're not number three. Because remember, that was what David did. He counted the people in the Old Testament. They still have companies that will help them determine if they're mixing their fabrics. And they're pretty strict about it still. Because in the Old Testament, it, it talks about not mixing fabrics together. Thank God, as believers, we don't have to worry about that as Christians. That God has given us a new covenant where we don't follow the old ceremonial laws. Another thing that's kind of interesting about the Jewish people is, so they're not allowed to ask a Gentile to do work on the Sabbath. But if a, a Jew, and you happen to be in Israel, or let's say they're celebrating the Sabbath here, uh, invited you into their home on a Sabbath day and started to tell you, oh man, it's really hot today, isn't it? Man, I forgot to turn on the air conditioning. Oh man, it's, it's a bummer. They're letting you know because they want you to do it without asking to tell you. They don't want to ask you to do it because that would go against their law. But they're giving you the sob story so that you can go turn it on for them because there's nothing written in their law against that. See, I hope you understand all these things I'm bringing up to you guys are traditions of man. They're traditions that they added to it. And even today, we can fall in failure to adding traditions to our relationship with the Lord and making them law. You see, we could say that we go to church every Sunday, therefore we're godly. We could say that we tithe, therefore we're godly. That we have been baptized, therefore we're godly. But you see, works do not equal godliness. Godliness produces works, but is not the basis of godliness. In verse 3 of Luke chapter 6, it says, But Jesus answering them, said, have you not ever read this, what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. You see, Jesus is teaching the Pharisees that concerning the law, God cares about the individual's hunger over the ceremony of the law. I love how Jesus is using the Old Testament to prove truth. You see, the, our Old Testament is important. It's important to understand. You see, when David and his men were fleeing from Saul, they needed food. They needed provision. It was for their health and livelihood. So they broke the ceremonial law. And Jesus here is commending David for it. He's not saying David was wrong in doing so. I remember one time there was a, a time I was fasting. And the, this, uh, when I work at the church, this woman brought a cake that she baked or some sort of dessert, if I remember correctly. And she's like, oh, look, I made this for the radio department, the ministry. I want you to try some. And in my mind, I looked at her and I saw how she put all this love and effort into it. And I was like, I'm not going to say no to this right now. And it wasn't about feeding my flesh. But in that moment, the spirit told me like, all right, your fast is done. Like, don't rob her of the blessing that she wanted to bless you guys with this morning. And I knew in that moment, all right, this is not about the ceremony. This is about what the spirit is leading me in. Now, if your life is in need, not a want, but I'm talking about a need for living. The church shouldn't stop you from meeting that need. I know there are some religions out there who would hinder a person from having a blood transfusion because they consider it to be immoral. That's wrong. People die from this. And I'm not going to guilt trip someone for staying home during this COVID pandemic. I'll encourage those who are healthy to trust God and be led by his voice using discernment. 
But I'm thinking of a brother in our fellowship who's concerned about his daughter. And the reason being, I'm not going to guilt trip him for trying to protect the life of his daughter. So there's a, a point and a time when we can't allow our traditions to overtake what is good, what is righteous. Let's look at verse 5. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus, he created the Sabbath. He was there at the beginning. We were singing about that. And because he is the sovereign over the Sabbath, he created its rules. In Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Sabbath originally comes from. One of the Ten Commandments. God told Moses to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So we see Jesus, he created the Sabbath as a day of rest. It's a day where we rest from our lively duties so that we could focus on God, so that we can honor the Lord in this, to allow him to fill us so that we can get our hearts and our minds prepared for the rest of the week. And because Jesus created the Sabbath, he's Lord over it. If Jesus says that to his disciples, hey, it's okay to eat grain today, then it's okay. It's okay to break bread. Look at verse six. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And man, a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Man, what a terrible and tragic thing that these Pharisees are doing here. They're watching Jesus to see if he's going to heal this man. And all they're thinking about is, oh, that's work. That's not a, what our dad taught us. That's not the way our forefathers passed it on to us. They're being judgmental, jealous, and critical. You know, sometimes we do that. Perhaps a new person comes to church and we turn on our, our radars of, okay, who's this guy? Who's this girl? What's she about? What's going on? Especially new believers in the Lord. Perhaps you have a someone who comes in looking very worldly and automatically our, our judgment goes like, oh, what, what, what are they doing? Don't they know this is church? Don't they know how they're supposed to be dressed Sunday morning? And that's been critical. Instead of being judgmental and jealous, we should be gracious, encouraging, and flexible. You guys have heard me tell the story several times of when Calvary Chapel was starting and all the hippies started to come into the, the church and they were coming in barefoot and smelly. So the pastors of Calvary Chapel went to Pastor Chuck and said, hey, they're, they're getting our carpet all dirty. Like, like we need to tell them to put shoes on and clean up a little bit. And Chuck Smith looked at them and said, oh, they're getting the carpet dirty? Well, then cut out the carpet and let them come. See, the heart of it was to make sure that the people are being ministered to rather than being critical and judgmental of them. So now the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see if he's going to heal this man. In verse 8, it says, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? See, this is the point of the Sabbath. God desired for work to be removed so they could focus on God and his kingdom, not to focus on the task of not working. You see, I remind myself that there's times when my work can interfere with church. See, I left working at a church to start a ministry that was funded by a secular job. And the point of it was ministry. And now there's been moments and times when I've been offered an extra shift or some overtime, and I definitely could use the money. But if I sacrifice what God has called me to do for a few extra bucks, it's not worth it to me. So I have to remind myself of those things. And this is what Jesus is telling them. Look, what's the point of of the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? In verse 10, And when he looked around at them all, He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Perhaps you've come here today and a trip, a trial has dealt you in life a bad hand. Jesus can make you whole. Jesus came to heal. This is the the awesome relationship we have with Jesus that on our brokenness, he makes us whole. So if that's you today, this is one of the promise, the words of the Lord to your heart that Jesus can heal that situation. Verse 11. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. See, now they're already thinking in their mind, how do we get rid of Jesus? How do we stop him? Jesus is getting in between God and man right here. You see, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5-6 through 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, because Jesus is becoming the mediator here between God and man, the Pharisees are getting jealous. We've been studying the Old Testament Exodus, and we see God placing Moses over the Israelites. He's the first prophet, so to speak, He is the mediator between God and the nation of Israel to relay the message, the word of God to all of Israel. And the Israel was supposed to do it to the whole world. And then after Moses, you have other prophets who came in. And through the Mosaic law, we have the priesthood that came in. And so the priests later on became the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious and spiritual leaders of their time. And they recognized that they were to be sort of mediators between God and man to relay the message of God to the people. And they loved their role. They loved the power that it gave them. They loved hearing the praises of men saying, teacher, teacher. And because of this, they took all of that in their pride and said, this is my role, this is my job, this is my duty. And they began to use it for their own gain. Charging people who would come to sacrifice an exponential amount on the animals that they were buying. And they were using ministry as gain. You've heard me say this many times that if this ministry starts to turn into you guys serving me rather than myself serving you guys, leave the church. 
You see, now that Jesus is coming into the world and showing the, the Pharisees, look, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. He's now healing people. He's forgiving people of sin. The Pharisees are starting to realize, hey, this guy's taking our spot. He's taking our place as mediator between God and man. We need to stop him. And that jealousy, it grew into hate. So much so that they wanted to murder him. In verse 12 now, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Now we can only speculate what Jesus prayed about. However, I find it that it would be in line with Jesus' character to pray for the men he was about to send into ministry. Jesus did not rely on the strength of men, for he knew what was in man. So he was asking his father God to help them, to prepare them. Are we doing so with our families? Sometimes we just think that we can do things in our own strength. Like Joshua, who was being victorious as the new leader of Israel, taking his men into battle and conquering and defeating And he began to trust in his own men's strength so much so that he forgot to pray and ask God if he should go fight up in AI. And then when they went to go fight in AI, they were beaten. They were destroyed. And the Lord told Joshua there's sin in the camp. But you see, Joshua, he didn't ask God before he went to go fight. He just went on his own. We need to be in prayer asking and seeking God's discernment, his guidance before we take those, those steps. Back in Luke chapter 6, verse 14, it says also now, we're going to name all the apostles here as he's calling them to himself. Simon, whom he also named Peter, the zealot, and Andrew, his brother, So we see Simon here, the zealot. We know a lot about uh, his name being Peter. We know a lot about his craziness. He was a really rough guy sometimes. He would just talk at a turn, stick his foot in his mouth. He would chop people's ears off. God's going to do a lot of work through this man, Peter. Also, Andrew, his brother. So Andrew, we always see in Scripture, Andrew bringing people to Jesus, as we should be. Note, it says, James and John, these are the sons of thunder. And now James and John, including Peter, were three of Jesus' closest disciples. Many times in the scriptures, you're going to see Jesus calling Peter, James, and John to himself, and they're going to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. These were Jesus' close disciples. And James and John, these guys were also rough dudes too. When people began to reject Jesus, They asked Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven like Elijah? And Jesus was like, whoa, slow down there, sons of thunder. We have Philip and Bartholomew. Not to be confused with Philip, who's in the book of Acts, the evangelist. In verse 15, it lists Matthew and Thomas. We know Matthew was the tax collector whom Jesus called. And Matthew and these zealots being in the same group together, only Christ can unite that. We know Thomas is doubting Thomas. I like to call him skeptical Thomas because he asks questions that I think some of us as honest skeptics ask. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot. So we have another zealot here. In verse 16, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So here we have this fellowship of 12 men going out. Look at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people 
from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and he healed them all again the teaching ministry of jesus was those three things preaching teaching and healing now the beatitudes look at verse 20 it says then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of god and when he says this He's referring to being poor in spirit. The opposite of, of having that very strong character that is without control. It requires meekness. It requires self-control. So in my study today, I have four things that we are to be and four things that we are not to be. So the first attribute that we are to be as believers is number one as believers we are to be meek so you guys know what meekness is I, i've taught on this before it's strength and power in control the picture of maybe a, a giant a big rottweiler a pit bull allowing a little baby to play with its face and the because the rottweiler that pit bull is trained it has its strength and control. He's just letting the baby mess with him. And he's like, Arr. that's meekness. Self-control. What Jesus is referring to here when he says, blessed are you poor. He's not just referring to finances. This is a poverty in spirit, but a richness in Christ. When you're rich in this life, it's hard to desire the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus even said it's, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. That's why David, he prayed, God, don't give me so much that I forget you. And also, don't give me so little that I'm tempted to steal. So may we be meek. In verse 21, Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. What he's referring to here, we get even more out of Matthew's gospel when he says the same sermon. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5, 6. So my second point for us as believers is we are to be righteous. For righteousness, we must hunger for holiness. We must be desiring to be made closer to Jesus. Do you desire holiness and contentment? The Bible says that if you desire holiness and contentment, that's great gain. Perhaps this morning this is your desire, but there are things keeping you from being righteous. And maybe sometimes we believe that our, our works are what is making us righteous. But God said to the people of Israel in the book of Jeremiah that their righteousness was as filthy rags. You see, we can't have our own righteousness but we must put on the righteousness that Jesus gives us. We must put on Christ. In Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14, it says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, to fulfill its lusts. I'm reminded of the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness that's putting on Christ's, his righteousness. You see, we have 
these sins, these idols in our life. And sometimes we feel as we're ready to throw in the towel, ready to call it quits because we've been in this season for so long. Do you guys remember the story of the woman at the, at the well who meets with Jesus? You see, Jesus, as he's traveling by Samaria, he comes across this woman at a well. And this woman is an immoral woman. And he asks for the woman to give him water. And she's like, how is it you ask me, a Samaritan, to give you water? And then Jesus answers her in John 4, verse 13. He says, look, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him would become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. See, what are you filling your life with? Does whatever it may be bring glory to God? Does it satisfy your spiritual needs? Tell me what sin can help and comfort you and bring meaning to your pain? Sin does not bring meaning to pain. But in Jesus, there's fulfillment. The awesome thing about when we allow and invite Christ into our hearts and our minds is he begins to change our desires. He begins to make us hunger and thirst for the goodness of God. To make us to be righteous. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So my third, to be as a believer, is we are to be broken. Now, I must say that I've lived a blessed life. Being born in the country that I live in, being born in the family that I grew up in. And I've come across individuals and and people who've had some really sad accounts and some tragic things have taken place in their lives. And I realized that as a church that we are a broken people. And sometimes all we can do is weep with a person. At times, words are not sufficient. You don't always need to be able to say what's going to solve a problem. But sometimes your presence, being there alone, is powerful. To rejoice with someone who is rejoicing and to weep with someone who is weeping. Jesus is telling his disciples that they're going to have the joy of laughter brought into their lives in the kingdom. That they can experience the good life through him. And that though we are broken, God is powerful in our brokenness. A lot of the, the times in scripture, and I've seen it in also my personal life, That God, before he greatly uses a person, he greatly breaks them. So we are to be broken before him. In verse 22, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. Which brings me my fourth point on how we are to be. We are to be set apart. See, when you're hated on Jesus' behalf, 
when you're excluded, when you're insulted and reviled, made fun of, when you're slandered and lied about? If they did it to Jesus himself, why do you think you should miss out on that, on that trial? But count it as gain. Every time you hear, oh, Sonny's a holy roller and he doesn't do this anymore. Just think of this, cha-ching, that's money, money in the heavenly kingdom. Reward and gain in the heavenly kingdom. So every time someone you, gets mad at you because of Jesus' behalf, your reward in heaven is building up. It's great gain for eternity, and that cannot be taken away from you. Now, Jesus is not saying, blessed are you when men hate you because of your own foolish reasons. He's saying on behalf of Jesus. That doesn't mean we could just go out there and make people hate us for no reason. It's not what he's saying. Don't be weird. Only be weird for Jesus. (laughs) Now, we are to be again set apart. These next verses, Jesus pronounces four woes. And these are how we are not to be as believers. In verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So as believers, we are not to be greedy for the world. Now, Jesus isn't just referring again to finances here. For King Solomon was the richest man at his time and the wisest man in the world who wrote the Psalms and much of the Old Testament was written by King Solomon who was a very rich man. But he knew and learned because he himself went through some sins and some trials. But he learned that holiness, that wisdom, the fear of the Lord was the most important thing over all the riches that he had. But we can be rich in worldliness, which is a sin. Some people, because they are rich in the world, they think that they don't need God. And in eternity, they're going to receive nothing. When you're trying to save for a house, your mind can go to all sorts of strange ideas to make money. Believe it. But to do so would use God for gain in my life. So far, be that far from me. So we are not to be greedy for the things of this world. In verse 25, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. So my second point here is we as believers are not to be full with sin. Or you could say we as believers are not to be satisfied with sin. You see, this is finding fulfillment in all the wrong places and evil. Now to hunger for God after it's too late, that's damnation. The worst thing about hell is the absence of Jesus. It's the eternal separation from God's love. Now you think that you're good without obeying God? Try living in a world where he isn't gracious. We need to be desperate for the presence of God. Not to be full and content and satisfied in sin. So we are not to be full with sin. Again, at the end of verse 25, he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, he's not talking about just laughing in general. He's saying, as a believer, my third point, we are not to be joyful in iniquity. Don't be joyful in worldly things. We shouldn't laugh or mock at it, glory in it, not to be full in it. And there's so many ways that we ourselves can go through that in life when we're in work some of the the films that we watch, we need to be careful. And let yourself be 
made fun of because you don't partake in other men and women's conversations when it goes to a bad place. Be set apart. Look at verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Which is now bringing me to my fourth point. As believers, we are not to be loved by all. See, because we are believers, there's going to be people who hate us simply because we're a Christian. And we are not to try to bend holiness and righteousness so that we can be loved by all. And we're not to be respecters of persons and people pleasers in sin. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, out of the New Living Translation, James writes, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meetings dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or I'll sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Hmm. May that not be us, church. May we not be loved by all, but may we love our enemies. Be kind to those who mock us. So, in summary, we are to be meek, righteous, broken before the Lord, set apart, and we are not to be greedy for the world. We are not to be satisfied in sin. We are not to rejoice in iniquity. And we're not to be loved by all. May you take those Beatitudes this week. Apply them to your daily life. And see how much more peace you have through this week. When you come across that situation, you have to make a decision. Am I going to be greedy or be giving this week? When you come across that situation, am I going to be inviting? Not a respecter of persons? May we follow in the footsteps of Christ. Amen? We're going to have communion this morning. And this morning as... This text has been given. May you ask the Lord to fix those things in your heart and in your mind that you just need to get corrected. I see you guys as a a church. You guys are saved. You guys are following in the footsteps of the Lord. But we all have things that we need to work on. There are those things in our hearts and in our mind that as we read the scriptures, God is correcting us in them. But the hopeful thing is that we are becoming something better. That we could allow more of the love of God in our lives and more of his peace. More of his comfort. So I'm going to sing this song. And as I sing this song, they're going to pass out the communion. And as I'm singing this song, just have that self-reflection. Look at your heart, your mind before the Lord, just place yourself before his altar and get right with him.
worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Corinthians chapter 11. Before we, before I read this text, if any of you are desiring healing, whether it be spiritually or even physically, why don't you just stand right now? Father, your word says, Lord, that there is power in Jesus. That Jesus is a healer. So I pray, Father, that you would heal these spiritually, physically, Lord. Those listening online, Father. We love you, Lord. We take this communion in faith, Lord God. Just as Moses was commanded to put that blood of the lamb on the doorpost, we put the blood of Jesus on our lives. Do with us what you wish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me let's partake of the bread And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of Jesus washes away our sins. Let's partake of the cup. And holy, there is no one like you. 
There is none beside you Open up my eyes in wonder Show me who you are And fill me with your heart And lead me in your love To those around me If you want prayer this morning after worship song. Go ahead and come talk to me, talk to my father. We'd love to pray with you guys. Let's end with one more song. Bless the Lord, oh my soul.